Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. I'm Dr. Rob Dixon, sitting in for Casey, and today we have a really special presentation for you. This is our case of the quarter, and this one, it's a little bit delayed, so the publication of these is a couple of quarters down the road, but just finished with quarter one CE for 2022, and I have our medics that were involved in this really, really interesting case. So Kevin Mifflin, our chief officer. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. And Peyton Seals, who is in charge on this particular call. Good morning, Peyton. Morning, Doc. All right. So, Peyton, get us started on this. Give us the background of how this very unusual call came out, what you were thinking about en route, and the situation you encountered when you arrived. Of course, Doc. We got the call at about 2 o'clock in the morning. It was in December. Um, Initially came out as cardiac arrest, then possible assault then we just really didn't know much. The calling party wasn't able to access the patient. So my partner and I discussed our roles once we got there. If it was an arrest, who was gonna do what? If it was an assault, how do we coordinate with law enforcement to not destroy evidence? The temperature this night was between 40 to 45 degrees. It was overcast, slightly damp outside due to some recent rain. And that's pretty much what we were thinking on the way to. Yeah, so this was a really interesting call because the call notes actually changed. It's classic emergency medicine. I love it. Making decisions with imperfect information, aren't we? So it came out cardiac arrest, unconscious person, possibly an assault. We don't really know. So we're really preparing for this broad spectrum. So you arrive on scene. What do you find, Peyton? We were directed to the patient. There was an officer with the patient. The officer reports to us. She has a pulse, she is breathing, she's responsive to painful stimulus, and she has constricted pupils. But the biggest thing he told us was that she was very cold. So very, very cold. On your initial assessment, you made some decisions. Tell us about that. Of course. I told my partner to go to the ambulance and start getting some Narcan ready. I told a firefighter to go to the ambulance and start getting some hot packs broken. And the other two firefighters and I got the patient onto the stretcher and moved to the ambulance so we could get her out of the warm environment. So we rapidly extricate her to a warm, warmer environment and a more controlled environment. It's 2.30 in the morning-ish uh, in a residential street, essentially. And you're really working this undifferentiated patient. So in, the, in your differential is still altered mental status, right? So it's yes, sir. some type of trauma, toxins, seizure, stroke, sure. sugar, all these different things. You get the patient to the truck, and about that time, Chief Mifflin arrives on scene. Kind of take it from there, guys, and tell us a little bit about the course and some of the decisions you made. Definitely. I've worked with Mifflin for quite a while now, and I know what he likes on scene, so I told him what I had assessed so far, what I what I know, and what my plan is. Uh, he agreed. We start getting the baseline vitals in the back of the ambulance, and the patient is found to be severely bradycardic at a rate of about 30 but she does not have a pulse associated with that. So we start CPR using the Lucas device. We're bagging the patient, giving ACLS medications. So course VF, you start deploying the ACLS algorithms, start coding the patient, the chief's on scene. And then this case really takes a twist towards the bizarre, which again goes back to we're dealing with imperfect information. Tell us about that, Chief. What happens? Right. We're in, in the initial phases of our resuscitation. We have a game plan, and we're laying out that game plan, and it's about this time that we hear a knock on the back door of the unit, and 
open it up and find a sheriff's deputy who was with the patient from the beginning. And the deputy looks at us and says, hey guys, um, we think this might be an overdose because we found empty medication bottles in the patient's house and it seems they wrote this note, a suicide note. So, so now we're thinking, you know, cardiac arrest and, and throwing an intentional overdose into the mix as well. So very cold patient, a potential overdose. Patient has some traumatic findings, but they're not significant, terribly significant. Normal-ish blood sugar was checked on the initial resuscitation. So when we dissected this case and got it ready for, for CE to present, or really started talking about it initially, it was super interesting and the guy submitted it. It made me think of some questions, like everybody that we encounter who's dead is cold. So who do we decide to start on? If we do start on CPR, resuscitating them, how long do you do it for? How, where, do we have some defined endpoint? If we, in fact, do start it, do the interventions that we usually deploy in the ACLS algorithms are therapeutic interventions, do those have any evidence they work? And kind of another, just as a side, gosh, could this really happen in Southeast Texas? You know, which I thought was really, this is a very, very unusual case. So, Chief... Let's start with that first question. Everybody that we encounter to assess a clinical death on is cold. How do we sort out which ones to start on? Certainly. You talk about a patient being cold and dead. Um, when callers are on the phone with our dispatchers, they run through the questions from the National Academy of Emergency Dispatch. And our instructions on the scene or on the screen on our uh, computer will tell us that if it's an obvious death from dispatch from the call taking process the patient is cold in an otherwise warm environment this patient wasn't cold in an otherwise warm environment the patient was obviously outside was very cold so we look at other things that will tell us do we work this patient or do we not and when we're looking in a patient to withhold resuscitation you know we look for those obvious signs of death things like affixed or dilated pupils. We look for rigor mortis or post-mortem lividity. Um, those things weren't present in this patient, but even, even more, they're not really reliable predictors for a severely hypothermic patient. So, so our, our decision was pretty easy. We're going to start this, the resuscitation on this patient. Right, because we're down at this point to a differential of two, mm -hmm. to severe hypothermia plus minus uh, some, some toxin uh, involved in this patient. So let's stop there and pause for a minute and just review with the listeners hypothermia. So to give you a framework, normal temperature is about 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius. For all you uh, listeners down in Australasia and in the UK, we'll try to make the, the right conversions here. So as we progress from mild moderate to severe hypothermia, the framework of numbers in Fahrenheit, I'll give it to you first in Fahrenheit, is about 90 to 95 is mild hypothermia, 80 to 90 is moderate, and then below 80 is severe hypothermia. Those are a framework of numbers to kind of give you an idea at what level, but there's no, it's just like heat illness, there's no direct level of where they go from one to the other, and it's really predicated on mental status and cardiovascular stability. So as you progress from mild, I was mild hypothermic this morning when I jumped in the pool. I had a shivering reflex. I felt uncomfortable. 
I, you can, I didn't remove myself from my environment. I just generated more heat to combat that. So that's mild hypothermia. As we progress to moderate, those patients have confusion, progressing to stupor. They may have dysrhythmia, progressing to cardiovascular instability, and ultimately severe with cardiac arrest. So there's your framework. And what are those numbers in Celsius? It's about 35 is normal. 32-ish to 35 is mild. Moderate is 28 to 32. And anybody believe 28 degrees centigrade, if you're a centigrade person, is severe for your framework and numbers there. So that made me think of the other question that we asked. Could this happen? Can I think of another scenario in southeast Texas where this would happen? I was thinking about I looked at the temperature gauge at 5 o'clock this morning. It was 59, 60 Fahrenheit out. And I thought, what if we had an unsheltered individual out in the elements that maybe had overused a toxin or some type of toxin or had some other medical problem that did not allow them to respond in their usual way to a physiologic cold, i.e. what happens when you get cold at night? You pull the covers up, you wake up, you're uncomfortable, and you self-protect. But people that can't self-protect, I could definitely see at 60 degrees Fahrenheit, if you were exposed and passed out there long enough in the elements, this could definitely occur. This can occur in warm environments. So I think that's one of our other take-homes here. And as we talk about this patient, Think of our framework, mild, moderate, or severe. Peyton, I'm going to give you mild and kind of moderate, and then Chief will we'll roll into some of the interventions. As we got more, more to severe hypothermia, the mainstays of therapy for the mild, moderate, and then Chief, you take severe, some of the things that usually happen in hospital. Of course, Doc. So initially, we want to remove the patient from the environment, get them out of the cold, and get them into a warmer environment. So that's what we had done. Um, this patient had very minimal clothing on, but we still wanted to remove that because it was also damp. So with that, then drying the patient off and starting to actively rewarm them, we put the heater on in the back of the truck. So turn the heater up. Start some warm fluids and hot packs. Okay, so initial stabilization after assessment, we think it's likely hypothermic, so we start attacking that. We're actively doing CPR. Chief, what are some other things that we can usually are deployed in the emergency department for these severely, severely sick hypothermic patients? In the emergency department, you'll usually see them bring in more invasive procedures uh, to try and warm the patient. You may see a urinary catheter inserted where they'll introduce warm fluids into the bladder, pull it out, and just keep recycling uh, with warm fluids over and over. You may see um, thoracostomies done uh, where they'll do a Plural space lavage with the fluid, warm fluid in, bring it out, more warm fluid in, bring it out. Uh, through an NG tube or an OG tube, uh, a gastric lavage may happen. Uh, all of the, any and all of those things may happen, but really when you look at what's going to warm the patient the best and, and probably have the best outcome for your patient, uh, would be the eCPR. Cardiac right. bypass, essentially. The, the ECMO device, absolutely. Putting the patient on that bypass machine to warm the blood, to oxygenate the blood, and you know, ultimately raise their body temperature. Right. So a spectrum as the patient gets sicker to more invasive therapies up to and including eCPR or cardiopulmonary bypass. 
So of all these interventions, we know in this patient, we had a slow sinusoidal rhythm, CPR was begun, some other interventions. The first pulse check, we had coarse VF, and it kind of brings up, you know, people say, well, don't move these patients, don't move. I think that the absolute correct decision was made because what is our alternative here? The patient is in a 40-degree environment. It's wet, damp, cold, dark. You cannot assess a lot of things. We're trying to rule out these other uh, potential causes. Talk about, Chief, a little bit about dysrhythmia. What's the flavor of dysrhythmias in some of these mild, moderate, and then severe hypothermic patients? And, and do the interventions that we normally deploy for them, do they work? Certainly. Um, when you look at, at mild and moderate hypothermia, um, it's not uncommon to see superventricular rhythms. You'll see atrial fib, you may see SVT. These rhythms in and of themselves in that setting are usually benign and don't require a lot of aggressive therapy. As the patient progresses down the spectrum, you may see um, a profound bradycardia, you may often see V-fib uh, as the patient progresses down that spectrum. Um, the key in treating the hypothermic patient is high-quality, uninterrupted CPR, warming the patient, and transport to the hospital so that they can continue those therapies in the, in the hospital. Um, do the medications work? Uh, there's not a lot of hard evidence, not a lot of compelling evidence that would say the medications are beneficial in that setting. There's not a lot of compelling evidence that we've been able to find that would say uh, the medications are harmful. And there's a lot of consensus guidelines out there like AHA, which says recommends three defibrillations and three rounds uh, and then reassessment. There's other expert opinion out there that says you give one go of ACLS interventions and then you rewarm the patient five degrees centigrade and then you have another go with defibrillation ACLS medications. That being said, we don't know that there's a lot of evidence. We, there is some suggestion that beneath 32 degrees centigrade, 30, 32, these are fairly futile uh, interventions. And our real goal, as Chief said, should be good, high-quality, uninterrupted CPR, oxygenate the patient, and do all that you can deploy in the field and in the emergency department to warm the patient up. This patient, we couldn't get a temperature on. We're going to shift and talk about uh, something I learned from this case. Tell us about our thermometer, Peyton. We attempted to get a rectal temp pretty early in the rest, I think before we even gave epi, and I was trying, and it, it has just like a loading dial it does when it's trying to read, and it did that for maybe 30 seconds and just gave up. It beeped and said unable to read. It just threw in the towel. Not and so when you look into this, our temperature sensing devices, and I would suggest that the vast majority of the handheld temperature sensing thermometers that we have in the emergency department and on the truck do not work at under 32 degree-ish Celsius. So all of them will do that. And in fact, this patient got about two and a half-ish hours of resuscitation. One of the clues and one of the things that we learned, I learned from this case, is Osborne waves. And so, Chief, tell us a little bit about Osborne waves. I kind of knew, I knew they existed and they're on every board exam, but I didn't know the temperature at which you start seeing them. And that could have been a clue, along with the other clues, that this was a severely hypothermic patient. Sure. To, I mean, to address your first question, what is an Osborne wave? On the EKG tracing 
there's a, an upward deflection at the J point. And if you think back to cardiology, the J point is that point where the QRS segment ends and your ST segment begins. So a little upward deflection, Doc likes to use the term a, a nubbin, a little upward nubbin and quick return back to the baseline. Most visible in your precordial leads, but the interesting thing about this Osborne wave is that it is present on an EKG when your patient's around 30, 32 degrees C. So it would have given us a clue at how cold this patient was, because I actually had no idea that our thermometers would not work below that level. You ever have one not work? No. I know. So lots of interesting things. So I'm going to shift this back to Chief Mifflin, because he was ultimately the highest chief officer on the scene in charge medically of the scene. How long do we continue with this? This patient's getting max therapy. It's not going our way. She's still in course VF. What's your decision tree, Chief? My decision tree was actually easier, uh, or fairly easy. Um, she's still, like you said, still in, in VFib and is not responding to our therapy. She did not meet our criteria for field termination, so I, our decision was made for us in that she didn't meet our criteria to terminate. We're going to go ahead and go to the hospital and let them make the decision. Which was exact right choice, right? Mm -hmm. We know that patients all these interventions beneath 32 degrees and there's there's no exact number but generally the literature would suggest that you warm them up you know we always hear the the ism in school and in our training and in the field you know you're not dead until you're warm and dead what's that warm it's about it's over 32 you got to work them to over that over about low 90s and if you're still not getting where you need to be then you consider termination there's some other things they're they're potassium levels and things like that, there's no set in stone on when to cease resuscitative efforts. We didn't in this patient, and this patient got continual high-quality CPR from the pretty much near the moment of contact, about three and a half to almost four hours, including all the time in the emergency department and the pre-hospital course. Give us good news, Peyton. Tell us about the patient's outcome. So the patient is still in the hospital neurologically intact though she's able to speak and clear sentences form complete thoughts and all that good stuff she does have a few issues still going on but neurologically she's intact so that's good so a huge huge win for this young person it was a fairly young person and and really i think a fantastic outcome overall now did we what are those complications as you would expect if you have cpr for three to four hours you're not perfusing some organs. One of them, the most important organ being your brain. Well, that one, check, turned out okay. Kidneys, this patient suffered some acute renal failure, some pulmonary failure, or ARDS. That should not be a surprise to all of us that as we hypoperfuse all these organs, the heart, the kidneys, the lungs, that we have some end organ symptoms with them. So not, not a huge, huge surprise there, Chief. Let's continue on and kind of try to wrap this up. So this was a great case for Southeast Texas. We talked about, you know, the history and physical exam really kind of dictating who do we start on. Chief talked about a warm environment. You have to consider all the historical factors. We talked about interventions and the, the spectrum of disease really kind of dictates how aggressive we're going to be in these, these rewarming 
uh, therapies that we're going to deploy on patients. So wrap it up for us, guys. Peyton, we'll start with you. What, what are your take-homes from this case? A couple of take-homes for me were recognizing and essentially having a differential of hypothermic patient um, and arrest. We didn't know really much history, but what we did know is extremely cold patient, cold and damp environment, unknown amount of time being in that environment. Also to handle the patient with as much care as possible. We felt for this patient, due to the extreme cold she was in, we need to get her out as quickly as possible and get her to the ambulance. But it's definitely something to consider with these patients. Yeah, and I'd add to that that to echo what you said, hypothermia, like some of the other environmental emergencies, there's a, a spectrum of disease. Uh, and as you progress down this spectrum in severity, you look at mental status, you look at cardiac instability, and you get to severe where you're severely altered and perhaps cardiac. Uh, cardiovascular collapse. Um, so it, that whole spectrum and where are you in your spectrum kind of will have a determination on, on what your initial interventions are. Um, for me, I, I remember too that the medications for standard cardiac arrest are probably not going to be effective when your patient is severely hypothermic, that below 32, 30 degrees C. And also that those signs, when do we start on a patient? Those signs that we look for, those obvious signs of death like rigor mortis or postmortem lividity, those are not going to be reliable predictors of death in your hypothermic patient. So it's a great, great points, guys. I think a, I think a great summary. I have nothing to add to that. So that'll do it for this segment of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Look for this to come out in EMS world. And keep looking for it. It's a recurrent quarterly submission that MCHD has. We're going to put a podcast out. We're going to have a written article uh, with some further information in it for you uh, to read and to have a look at. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please send them to us at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Please leave us a like or a Google review where you listen to your media. We really, really appreciate your feedback. A lot of the ideas that come to the cast come from the, the people it serves, from not only our own paramedics and, and personnel here at MCHD in the region, but all the listeners around the world. So we appreciate you listening. That'll do it for today. Chief and Peyton, thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing this story with this fantastic case. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.